Good morning. This is Coffee with the Sarlos, and I'm Karen. I'm Kelly. Thanks for staying tuned with us through our Remembrance Day series. This is show four with Jim Lennox. Just a reminder, if you have the opportunity to watch the show instead of just listening today, mm-hmm. um, there are pictures to go along with Jim's evidence as he pre- uh, presents it, um, which is well worth seeing. Mm-hmm. But um, you will not be lost if listening is your only option. It is wildly intriguing. Jim, welcome back for day four. Hi, Jim. How are you? We are well. Excellent. Yes, we have our tea. Oh, good. Kelly's dressed up. I'm in my comfies. <laughs> so just to listen to your story. So like I've got my shawl on and I'm all ready to hear your story today. <laughs> Excellent. And quite a story it's going to be again. Um, so much like I did in the previous podcast, I'm just going to step a few back. Uh, just to uh, uh, remind a few people where we are. Uh, And I have quite a stack of notes again today because we're just some technical information that without it kind of uh, loses the story a bit. And so I'll be reading from these notes a fair bit because if I miss these, I'm going to lose myself because I get too excited in the story and uh, just kind of wander off somewhere, right? So uh, anyway... We had grandfather out of camp, and uh, this camp just outside of Libya's 10K, approximately north of Auschwitz. And uh, we identified it as a camp, but we had no name. And there never has been a name associated with this place. Um, but it met all, meets all the requirements that the, the historical societies and the museums have made to consider this a camp. Uh, which I'll go over for a second, and that is any really any kind of place where people were taken prisoner, incarcerated, uh, collectively confined, and, 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 and dealt with by the Germans. Um, interesting enough, if you actually go to the website of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, you will find tons of information on all of these camps. And just as a point of reference, uh, you know, listening to the troubles we had finding this camp and, and the time it took, um, there were approximately, uh, this is from their website now, approximately 44,000 camps. And that's all through Europe that the Germans had set up. And these are all, you oh. know, for, like we said before, for different purposes. And some of them, were small purposes, but they were still there for a reason. And this is one of them. And I'm pretty sure it's not on their list. So this one kind of is right now unnoticed. Maybe that'll change. Don't know. So uh, needle in a haystack, pretty much, pretty much. And further to that, um, we never really uh, dealt with in the last session or last podcast, We never talked a lot about the things my grandfather did specifically while he was there. And he wasn't there long, but he still had jobs to do because he was given that position uh, of a a, uh, camp functionary. Um, There's many things. We spent many, many sessions. In fact, probably at least 10 sessions, Karen, uh, talking about this camp and what my grandfather saw, did, and got involved in just to try to get a better handle on what he experienced there. And um, for, for example, 
one session, you'd look out your window and by your shed and in your yard, you could see, you could see people, uh, they were dark and you saw um, light blue lights, like a string of Christmas lights around them. And uh, we couldn't figure out what that was at the time. However, looking into what was in the area of where my grandfather was located, uh, we learned that these were the carbide lamps that the miners were using. It was a very common thing to use a carbide lamp mm -hmm. and it gave off a very, very light blue glow, just mm -hmm. enough for them to do what they needed to do. And down the road, not very far, was a very large coal mine. So grandfather had obviously been to that place mm -hmm. at some point doing one of the jobs he was asked to do. Uh, another place, uh, uh, he got to talk to some of the people that were in the camp, I guess, and, and he said he could smell blueberries when he smoke with, spoke with them. Now, I'm sure they weren't eating blueberries. Um, I don't know where they get blueberries at the time. They wouldn't be given that kind of a treat. Um, so off to the good old internet I went and um, I don't know how many pages down and the Google search under blueberries, it took me, I'm sure it wasn't the first five pages. And I learned that pilots ate blueberries because they believed it enhanced their, their night vision. So that led me to believe that he had wandered into a camp somewhere in his area that had uh, pilots as POWs. Yeah. So that kind of narrows down some of the camps because not all the camps had POWs and not all the camps had pilots in them. So uh, that was kind of interesting as well. So would they have separated those people? Is that what you mean? Oh God, yeah. Um, normally prisoners of war would not be kept in the same place that they had these large concentrations of uh, the Jewish people and, and the other people they considered undesirable that they were gonna to work to death. They wouldn't be kept in the same proximity. Uh, okay. First of all, POWs were given different rights, different privileges and they were kind of protected under the Geneva Convention. Not that that convention was actually followed all the time, but- So many it, fucking oxymorons. Oh, oh yes. It's just like, <laughs> unbelievable. Well, well, they came up with these rules. You know, there's rules to war. We today have the law of armed conflict. You just can't go off and shoot and blow up shit. You had to follow certain rules. Did anyone tell Donald Trump that? <laughs> I'm not going down that road. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so uh, POWs, uh, they would be treated better. That doesn't mean they were treated great, but they would have been treated better. And they would not have wanted the POWs to see necessarily what was going on in some of these other camps. They didn't want anybody to know what was going on in these other camps, which is why uh, when you got to know too much, you were the next one going to the chamber to be gassed, right? So they didn't want anything getting out, which is also why they destroyed everything they possibly could when they left the area, including records, all, all, all amounts of evidence that they could think of, they destroyed, uh, assuming they had the time to do so. So there was a lot going on in that area. One, one place he went to, there were buildings full of women that were working on sewing machines, doing jobs, and others were, uh, creating what looked like they could be buttons 
whatever. Um, so there's different kinds of activities throughout that area. And again, if you go to the website, pull up, you'll get maps, you'll get the descriptions of camps that were in that area. And you can see all the different functions that there were there. There was, there was a job for everybody. So, and uh, they needed uh, the workers and they had all the captives they needed. So, yeah, so that, lots of work we did talking about this camp and what he would have experienced when he was there. So on that note, and this is now into to new stuff, I need to take a little bit of a step back in time to try to explain potentially how he got there. Now, the Germans pre-war and early parts of the war, they had a decree called the Nacht und Nebel Decree, which meant night and fog. And it's just visual as night and fog, dark, foggy, can't see anything. Um, now, if you remember, my grandfather was very adamant in stating that he did not know where he was. He did not know where he was going. He had no idea. And that came out over and over again in quite a few of our sessions. Um, so I'm led to believe that that in itself was also a clue on its own. So like I say, no visible identifiers. Uh, he was not given a trial after he was arrested. He was just stuffed onto a train and shipped off to this place that he didn't know. Okay. Well, within the decree, the decree was first designed to try to stop people from doing acts against the, the German army, um, you know, essentially resistors. They wanted to try to stop people from joining and, and doing things uh, that would slow them down. Very hard. It's easy to, easy to take over a country. Well, that's not easy to take over a country, but it's, in this case, they walked into a lot of these countries, walked over them very quickly, but now they had to occupy them. So presumably the people within those countries don't want them to be there. So they're going to try everything they can to slow them down, to sabotage this, sabotage that, cause all kinds of problems. You can never have enough troops to control all of that. You know, it just takes a couple of people to do a lot of damage. So it's a big problem. So they came up with this, this de decree to try and stop that kind of activity. The idea behind it was anyone that had already been uh, arrested by the secret police or the German army uh, could have been given a trial. If that trial did not result in the immediate death of that person, they were to be taken to Germany and put in a camp and dealt with. On the other hand, you could be arrested and not given a trial at all, stuffed into a train or some other means and whisked off to Germany and dealt with as well. Further to that, there would be no communication. You would not be told what was going on. You wouldn't be told where you were headed. Mm. Uh, you might not even be told why you were going there. Your families, friends, nobody would be communicated with uh, to uh, tell you, tell them what happened to you. Upon your arrival at wherever you're sent, you would not be given uh, the rights to mail. You wouldn't be able to write letters home or anywhere else, and you wouldn't be able to receive any letters. 
You wouldn't be given any care packages, things POWs would get. Uh, basically, you were totally, completely in the blind and isolated. Further to that, you wouldn't be sent, if, well, I shouldn't say that. You could be sent to one of these larger camps that had other prisoners in it, but you would not be permitted to mix with them. You would be in an isolated compound within that camp or in one of these special camps set up to just have these kinds of people taken. The idea behind that was so you couldn't communicate with other prisoners and say, hey, where am I? And get some kind of information. It was total isolation, no name tags, no registration, nothing. So the idea behind that was is uh, most likely you would never come home and your family would never have any idea whatever happened to you. And they wouldn't know where to look for you. That to me would be a fairly good deterrent to a lot of people. You know, it's fear. Um, but it didn't stop everybody, obviously. Grandfather being one of them. But based on that decree and his descriptions of how he was handled after he was arrested, not getting any identification, not knowing anything, never registered, nothing, it is a very good possibility he was arrested under this decree. Um, of course, we may never find any proof of that in documentation because there isn't any, because they didn't put any out. So it's a very interesting um, piece, but again, with his insisting that he didn't know, I'm kind of taking that as a very large clue all on its own. But that leads us into a, a very interesting and actually quite funny session, Karen. I'm turning my page here. And this now, if we want to refer, um, picture number 19. I came in for a session after spending a night on the computer again, where I'd found a picture. And this picture was of some prisoners that were arrested under Noctu Nobel. Now it's a picture, I don't mean a photograph. It was like a painting, a drawing painting that somebody did, likely after the war, doesn't matter. Um, I've got it in front of me here. Now this picture depicts a group of people, their backs to us, standing in a row, and they, they've got hats on. Their hats are of different colors, uh, some stripes, some solid colors, some of X's, some of dots, and other marks on their hats, but on the back of their outfits, they have X's, some have NN written on them, whatever. And this is a depiction of prisoners in a knocked in a bell camp. So I thought I'd bring that to you to say, hey, what do you think of this? You know, was grandfather, you know, one of these kinds of prisoners? So I show up at your place and, and first thing you do, which you do often, you say, I got to tell you a story. And so you had, you went through the story, you were painting your fingernails that day. And uh, you painted them all kinds of wacky colors. And on each fingernail, you had dots and little X's and little marks on them. And you couldn't figure out why in the hell you had gone and done that. So you showed me your hand. You know, and we laughed. It's funny. So did I. 
you remember this? Oh, I told her how ugly they were. <laughs> Why would you do this? What would I awesome. do this for? And, you know, we should have taken a picture. That was our mistake because that would have been super. I would have framed that picture because it fits in beautifully here with a story. I was laughing harder than you when you showed me your hand because I pulled out the picture and showed you these Nocton Nobel prisoners that look just like your fingers. If you look That's at weird, weird, but it's also kind of cool. If you look at the, the the row of people at the bottom of the of the picture and just use their heads and their hats, they look just like fingertips with the fingernails painted different colors and and whatnot. Kind of cool. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a good laugh. Good laugh for me, anyway. It, it explains in so many really fucked up ways, Jim, how <laughs> Kelly and I live our lives. Like if somebody really is listening to this as they're, you know, cooking or tidying up their living room or something, and they're hearing that I wake up and that I paint my nails to match something that you're going to bring in, just to validate something for you from your dead grandfather. Yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating, actually, and, and kind of cool that it happens that day or, or very just before, right? Um, it's like he's, you know, he's again taking over your body for a moment yeah. and uh, just giving me another picture, yeah. which, is, which is very awesome. Love it. So, yeah, again, I, I do think he was one of these kinds of prisoners, but, you know, I'm not even really looking for records because there's nothing out there that tells me there's going to be one. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just another piece to keep in the back of the back of my mind uh, about this story and how he was treated and came to come to this place in the first place. Very and, frustrating for families even decades after this war. Well, it, yeah, and, and, and for my grandfather's family, even yeah. in their accounts of what he did during the war, this is not in it. This whole tra uh, transition from home to this camp and back, they had no knowledge of. So first of all, he never told them, and they weren't told by anybody else. Um, so it's yet another piece to this uh, great puzzle. Fascinating, so. too, that some people just want to come home and forget. Not, and, and that's their right. That's their, you know, they've lived it. I understand that but then potentially not understanding how someone else wants the information. It, it um, gives them closure or connects dots for them or makes them feel connected to you. And so this desire to forget really does, I don't want to say break families, but it certainly disconnects them. Uh, hugely, yeah. hugely. Um, you know, I have my own stories that nobody knows about. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, I think, Initially, you come home and you want to forget because it's a way of trying to be sane because um, you got all this crap bouncing around your head and, and you don't understand a lot of it, which is really why the problem exists. If you understood it, then it wouldn't be as big a problem. Um, but this would have been so much garbage all at once and uh, very traumatic uh, without a doubt. And... Who are you going to talk to about it? Not anybody. You would have to find that right person, and you wouldn't necessarily know who that would be. Um, 
And Jim, someone, you know, in particular, like your grandfather, who um, was put put in charge of uh, some pretty gruesome tasks. I, I can't imagine that you would trust anyone with that information mm -hmm. to be able to see you as a person again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you would certainly feel smaller. Mm -hmm. um, but also the embarrassment, mm -hmm. I think. Even though I had absolutely nothing to do with that, you know, yeah. it was out of your control. You did this or you died and you might die anyway. Mm -hmm. But at the time you're living for the moment. And um, it was his way to go on. He had to just keep doing it. But, you know, you're going to run home to your family and say, hey, I grabbed a bunch of dead bodies and tossed them into a shed the other day. You yeah. know, like it's not something they're going to understand um, and that's the big thing, even with a therapist, you know, you go through a busload of therapists because you just don't get the right vibe, the right reactions when you're trying to say what you need to say. And uh, that's why, you know, my buddies, they'll talk amongst our, we'll talk amongst ourselves. You know, we were all there. We all experienced a lot of the same things. So together we'll put it together rather than have an outsider try to say, yeah, yeah, you know, here's some pills or read this book or, you know, just do whatever. It, it, it's almost demeaning at that point, you know. Uh, you were there for a reason. You thought it was a good reason. Um, you did your duty. And, and, and it's kind of, you know, even in therapy, feels like it's getting swept under the rug, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so, a lot of that doesn't go over too well with uh, a lot of the guys that I know anyway. So I, I imagine back then it was even worse because you'd be looked on as having some kind of a problem. We don't know what it is. I don't even know what they would have called it. And it was like, forget about it. Just forget about it. Move on. Right. And uh, I'm sure that's what happened with every one of these people as much as they could move on. So with that theme in mind, moving on, um, his trip home. I'm going to call it his trip home. Um, we left him leaving the camp. Uh, the German guards feared for their lives with the Soviets just down the road. When I say just down the road, we're talking 20 miles. That's not very far. That is the front line. So you can heal it, hear it. You can feel it. Uh, every explosion would be like you're standing right next to it. Um, so they know there's stuff coming, whether they waited for the order to leave or whether they just said to hell with this, I'm leaving, which I would have done. Um, doesn't really matter. One morning they get up, guards are gone. So with that in mind, we do know from history that Auschwitz, 10K down the road now, um, pretty much the same place, was officially evacuated on the 17th of January, 1945. Now there were, the start of the evacuations was a few days before that. The main evacuation and final one was 17th of January. That's camp guards, camp boss, all prisoners that weren't already dead or could move were moved out of there. Now, they were moved out on foot, mostly. There was just not the capacity to put them on any forms of transit. Plus, they didn't really care about them that much. So the idea was is the prisoners were not to fall into the hands 
of the Allies, in this case, the Soviets. So they're going to take them with us. We might need them down the road. If they survive, maybe we can use them. The Germans are taking the prisoners with them? Yes, they are. As they're retreating? Yes, they're herding them like sheep. And that's probably not even a good example because you treat sheep a whole lot nicer. If, if you fell behind, uh, you didn't die on the spot, they shot you. If you tried to escape while they were leaving, they shot you as well. Few people did escape because there was a lot of chaos, uh, but not very many did and survived to tell about it. So with Auschwitz leaving 17th of January 45, I'm gonna take a stab and say, because he's right next door, these guards left the same time. They probably got the same order. We're bugging out. So they're gone. So grandfather, around 17, 18th of January, I'm assuming, started his trip home. And uh, yes, hell of a trip it turns out to be. So where does he go? Right? Where do you go? You're not going east. The Soviets are in the east. That's where the big mess is right now. You can't go south. South is a mountain range. Remember, this is January, middle of winter. So you're not going to be climbing any friggin' mountain passes. So the only direction you could go is north, northwest. So that's where he headed. Out the camp, north, northwest on the road. Now, this is where I, I want everybody, if they can, to try to imagine but put yourself in his shoes, okay? First of all, it's winter, very, very cold. Unlikely you have the appropriate uh, outfit to wear. If you're lucky, you had shoes. If you're even luckier, you had boots. Now saying what condition they're in. You would be dressed in the same outfit that you were picked up in God knows how, how long ago. Uh, like they, it wasn't a clothes factory. Uh, if you were in one of these larger camps like Auschwitz, you would have been given, you know, the old famous striped pajamas, they call them, right? Just a very thin, thin outfit, easily identifiable. That offered no protection whatsoever. Lucky few might have been able to scoop a blanket before they left. But they're on the road dressed like this in January, mid-January. Turns out history is showing that this was the one of the coldest, if not the coldest winters in recorded German history. So lucky for them, hmm. right? So they're improperly dressed. So picture yourself in those conditions. Now you're on a road. The road is completely packed with people. There's not only prisoners from camps heading off in the same general direction. There's German troops mixed in between. There's trucks and other pieces of equipment all sharing the same road. Also inject thousands upon thousands of German refugees. Now these refugees are there and we're talking Poland right now because when Germany took over Poland, the idea, one of the ideas behind it was to create living space for Germany. In doing so, they evicted all the Jews and people they didn't like, put them in the, put them in the camps, dealt with them, and then in turn offered their places of business and homes to Germans. So in came Germans from main Germany 
took over these homes of these Polish people and made it their own. In many cases, they got all the furniture and everything that went along with it. And that was a deal. So now, because the German army did nothing but cause shit in the, the Soviet Union when they attacked them, the Soviets were on the move now and they were retaliating. The stories were out. They were doing all kinds of nasty to any Germans they came across on their travels towards the West. So there's a lot of fear involved there, a lot of anxiety. So these refugees by the thousands, I say thousands, I'm, I, I'm being light here, tens of thousands, they're all compressed into the same area moving west. There's only a few roads you could travel because there's only a few bridges you can get across that haven't already been destroyed. So it was a very big funnel, lots of people. So put that in your, in your imagination as well. All of this confusion, chaos, anxiety, temperatures, probably not in the best of health, uh, lots of crap going on. And this has, this try to keep that image with you for the rest of this story because this stays with us for the rest of the story, okay? So this isn't just, I'm leaving, I'm heading home, bye, West, catch the first train. Didn't happen, all right? Nobody got that. So we're on foot in shitty conditions, all right? So he's heading north, northwest, has to, no option. One of the first places that he tells us he stops is Zagan. Now remember Zagan, we've talked about it in the past. It's on the board here with the blue spider, which is kind of cool because that plays into that whole thing as well. Zagan now was where Stalag Luft Three was, the POW camp for air personnel. Well, Zagan, I'm gonna say it was a, probably a good 10 day trip somewhere in there because when he arrived in Zagan at the camp, because for whatever reason, that's where he went, likely because that's where the funnel of refugees was also headed, right? There's safety in that. The Germans aren't gonna attack their own people. We'll stick in there. He spoke, I'm sure he spoke decent German being Dutch, they're very close in language. He was from a town that was right very much on the German-Dutch border. So there was a lot of transition there. So he could have passed for a German refugee. I think that was his game for a lot of this. But anyways, it had to have not taken any less than 10 days for him to get to Zagan. Now Zagan, I'm looking over at my map. I'm going to guess about 250 miles from the camp. Is, it, that's a fairly long trek. So 10 days is not a stretch. The reason I say 10 days is because Zagan was evacuated with all its guards and prisoners on the 27th of January. So these people had to be gone before he showed up because they weren't there when he got there. So you kind of get the idea. A lot of movement, a lot of people, a lot of chaos. So when he got there, he described refugees being there and his camp was full. He said too many people and he said there were too many mice. 
infested with mice. That's believable. So he chose not to stay inside the camp. He slept outside the fence. Um, what he got for services, I don't know, but I'm sure that would have been some measure of comfort, if we can call it that, knowing he was in a place that he could at least close his eyes. So Zagan. He didn't stay there very long, uh, I'm sure of that. Um, not with the Soviets behind, because while it was 250 miles from camp, it wasn't straight west 250 miles, and, and the Soviets were moving hard and fast. So his group would have been trucking right along, trying to get home. So he moved onward. Where did he go next? Uh, this is where, Karen, we were presented with sessions full of clues. He did not come out and tell us directly where he went. And, and uh, I'm sure, again, that there was a good reason for that. Um, so I'm just going to list off a few of the clues before I start explaining how this all gets put together. Okay. So he's left Sagan. He's not going east. We know that. He describes, it includes a large building. And there were stone walls, like stone fences. Says there were Italians there. He gave us the letters NRC in capitals, specifically in capitals, NRC. He says he signed his name in a register. And there'll be more on that. When asked who was there, because at this point I'm trying to determine how long it took him to get there and who he was dealing with when he got there, you know, what army was there. He described the people in brown uniforms, very important, brown uniforms. And so we worked on this one for quite a long time. And in a further session, um, I, you know, I come in and ask for more clues. Give me something, you know, this, this fits too many places. He, he made you sound out the name of the place. And it was kind of humorous. Um, but it came out Bugachow. Oh, yeah. Bugachow. I have a little bit of a memory of that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of cool. Bugachow. So I don't know why I actually thought that that might be a place. So, <laughs> <laughs> of course, I head home all excited. You know, I got a name now, Bugachow. But you said it sounded like Bugachow. So I got on Google again and went to the translate. And within translate, you can create sounds by typing in letters or different words. So I started typing in letters in Polish and listening till I got the sounds that sounded like Bugachow. And that did not take five minutes. That took a long time. And uh, I actually had to consult a Polish English dictionary uh, and inside there there was like areas where certain sounds were spelt like this so I had to grab that Google Translate start putting it all together and I finally got what sounded like Bogachow I still didn't know if it was a place but it's spelt Bogachow B-O-G-A-C-Z-O-W well turns out that is actually a place. 
It's actually a town, and it is not far from Zagan. Really? Right. Uh, actually, it's just just a little to the north of Zagan. North. North. So, within uh, within Bugachow, Google Google Earth again, another marvelous tool. I found a large building. I found several large buildings, but it's not a big village. It is a tiny village. I keyed on one place and it matched the description that he gave us for this building. And it turns out to be Palak Bogachow. Now Palak, it's like a basically a stately manor. Okay. Oh. Like, call it a rich people's house, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Big bloody house. And um, this place looked like his description, but I wasn't sure about that. Uh, then I stumbled on another clue. I started looking at NRC. It's a very specific clue. NRC comes out to a million different things when you type it in the internet. But one of them turns out to be a Dutch newspaper. And it just so happened that when I opened up that newspaper for whatever bloody reason on the internet, I happened to hit a page that talked about this sticking house. And it talked about the house in, in reference to a Dutchman had bought it. Now, this is a long time after the war. A Dutchman had gone and bought it and was in the process of renovating it. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Um, okay, NRC. Well, digging further and further into Bogotá, turns out there is a history of Italians being in the area during the war. And I'm not going to expand on that just yet, but we're going to get there. So now we got Italians. We got possibly NRC, right? And we got a house that matches the description. Brown uniforms. Now, brown uniforms are very specific. Um, and I didn't learn. I didn't, I didn't dot the I on this one till last night. Believe that one. Last night. And that had to do with me putting together this podcast notes and realizing I had some holes in it. And I'm just like, yeah, it's not going to do for me. So I thought I'd quickly try and fill a hole or two just to make it look a little nicer. And I came across a document I'd never seen before. It was probably there, but I didn't look at it. 298 page Dutch document or Dutch German document. So it was written in German. So a whole lot of hours spent copy paste into Google Translate to try and figure out what it said. Holy shit. And it talked about this area during the war and why it was so important and many key events that happened in this area. And that's where I learned about the brown uniforms. So I'm not sure when I talk about the brown uniforms more than that just yet either just to know brown uniforms were there okay so grandfather tells us actually we can throw up picture number 21 uh grandfather tells us that he was allowed to stay at this building for a couple of days however they put him and other people that were also staying at this building into a truck 
and they drove him down the road to a camp that was just down the road. Okay, not far. I'm going to say five, ten minutes tops driving. So it's right next door. And this camp turns out to be Christianstad. Now, Christianstad, when you do the uh, research on this place, it's hard to find information on this place. And the reason for that being is this place was declared like top secret during the war. And it kept that status for great many years after the war. Mm. Christianstadt is the home of a very, very large chemical and explosive factory that POWs and other prisoners were shipped into by the thousands to work in. This camp occupies huge acreage. It's hidden in a forest and all the buildings are separated by a quite a bit of distance. The idea be, being behind it that the explosives were so volatile that if one building blew up, it would destroy another, destroy another. So they spread them all out. So it occupies a huge area. And turns out uh, a lot of Italians were working in this camp, which is why there were Italians in the area. The Italians were used to be members of the Italian military. Now I have to tell this little segue to, for it to make any sense. The Italian military was allied with the German army. So the start of the war, they fought together against the allies. The Italians, they didn't fight as well. They, uh, they basically surrendered to the allies not long into the war. Their leader Mussolini was killed. So the allies surrendered and that was the end of the Italians as part of the uh, effort to support the Germans. Now, the Germans always considered the Italian fighters as inferior. So when they surrendered to the Allies, the Germans took them as prisoners, the military. The re now, they, this is where it gets a little bit technical, okay? Um, the Italians, just because they surrendered to the Allies, didn't mean that they were part of the Allies anymore. They just weren't working for the Germans anymore. Mm -hmm. Germans took them because they were working with them. They were mixed in with the German army in different locations. So it just said, fine, give us your guns. Off to camp, you go. Because of that, they didn't consider them POWs because they weren't captured as a part of war that you normally would when you capture POWs. So they called them Italian military internees. And it was a reason behind all this because they did not have to treat them like POWs anymore. They could treat them like dirt. Okay. So these people were shipped off to different locations, these soldiers, Italian soldiers. Now, while they were interned, they were forced to sign documents declaring that they agreed to become civilian workers, okay? Which further allowed the Germans to use them for more things. Long story short, a bunch of them ended up in Christianstadt at this armaments plant. So grandfather's clue, Italians, makes sense, okay? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why would you, hell, hell would you think there'd be Italians up there, yeah. right? Really have no reason. So it's so yeah. messed. 
Uh, this this is why I'm reading off in of notes because this is where it gets really intertwined and technical here, and I I don't want to miss anything because I, I lose myself in this story. So again, Christianstadt, top secret camp. Nobody was allowed to know anything about this place. It was disguised as good as it could be disguised. If you were seen wandering around this camp, they'd just shoot you. They couldn't allow this place to go noticed. When aircraft flew overhead. They actually had a pile of Dutch women from a concentration camp assigned to giant foggers. And these foggers would get fired up and they blow fog over the whole area to disguise the fact that there was something there. Can't drop bombs on something you can't see, right? Especially with a village right next door. They just wouldn't do it. Mm. So they had this thing down pat. What's happening at this time during the war in Christianstadt is that they're getting pretty antsy. The, this is a very important factory for the German war effort. It created all the explosives, ammunition for all of their special weapons, including some that they were working on. Uh, they couldn't afford to lose this place. It wasn't the only place that did this, but it was one of their main ones, right? So you've got the Soviets coming up from the east, and they're getting closer and closer and closer to this very location now. So work is underway to pack up what they could from this camp, take out all the explosives they already built, put them on trains, trucks, whatever, get them out of there so they could use them, as well as disassemble as much equipment as they could or destroy equipment they couldn't disassemble so it couldn't be used by anybody else right? They needed to use this stuff somewhere else or not let anybody else use it. So that kind of effort was underway. Further to that, they also packed up their prisoners and marched them down the road further into Germany. So there was a lot of shit going on in Christianstadt at the time my grandfather would have arrived there. Lots of activity. The Germans also brought up because they wanted to delay uh, the Soviets' advance on this camp as much as possible. They brought in special, specially trained police units, which really aren't police, they're more army than police, to, to fight the Soviets if they got there too quick. So you had all these people that were bolstering the security in the area as well. Now, at the same time, his grandfather's moving through and all this shit's going on in Christianstadt. Remember, this is right down the street from Bogacha. If you see, you'll see it on the map. It's right there. Let me get my dates here because I had to look this up. Uh, the 20... No, Christianstadt was evacuated on the in early February. Okay? So the timeline's getting squished here. But since the 25th of February, 45, refugees by the thousands were funneled into Christianstadt. Again, there's a river running through there. Bridges have been blown up. There's only a few roads. And they're all squeezing into this small little town of Christianstadt. Okay? So... The mayor actually had a contingency plan. This, this was in the document I read uh, last night. It's kind of cool. The mayor had this contingency plan because he knew this might happen. And he brought up 
members of the Nazi party to Kristenstadt to help register and control and set up logistics to, to deal with all these refugees. Now, back to the brown uniform clue. The Nazi party was famous for wearing brown uniforms. Well, now, just because it's a Nazi oh. party. <laughs> well, I didn't know. Yeah, just because I say Nazi party, I don't mean soldier. Okay, we're talking mm. businessmen, civilians, fanatics. Oh. Maybe I join your cause, right? In this case, we're talking more civilian members of the Nazi party that came up to do this. Soldiers are all, they're long gone. They're all being used elsewhere, not going to be put into this kind of a task. So they brought them up to run logistics to help move these refugees. And they actually went to the effort of setting up housing, not building housing, but hey, you got room for a bunch of refugees in your home. Yes, good. Here's 20, whatever. And they just went around and got as many places as they could. So these refugees had places to stay. Now, again, we're not talking these prisoners that came from these concentration camps that they don't care about. We're talking German refugees going home or the old home, real Germany, right? So they're trying to treat them fairly decently. Well, grandfather being in the mix could have easily passed himself as one of the refugees. So here's another clue. They set up registers. They went around and registered these people to make sure they were who they said they were. So they weren't housing people that shouldn't have been there. So I believe grandfather signed one of these registers. Um, where the hell the register is, no idea, right? But the registers were there. He said he gave his real name in a register at this location. So it all fits with what was happening there and, and, uh, and the proof from this other document I was reading last night, actually. So this is where this is really cool because it all come together. And I mean, at the last minute, last minute, I was still reading it this morning. So we've got all that going on, which is a hell of a lot. And we still have, remember, the Soviets coming from the east and they're closing fast. So where does that put us? That puts us sometime after the 25th of February that he's in this location. And that becomes important too, because we don't know what happens between here everything that happens between here and when he finally gets home, but we know he's home in April, right? So there's a lot that goes on here. So there we got Christianstad. We got the register. We got the brown uniforms, okay? Soviets are coming again. Now, as I said, he was put in a truck with his buddies. Buddies. <laughs> Sorry about that. He's put in a truck with the people he was housed with in Bogotá in this paddock this big house, shipped down the road to Christianstadt to be housed in this camp when this was all going on. But turns out the camp is overcrowded. Now we know why it's overcrowded. All these bloody refugees are there. Tries to get in. They allow him to stay one night, stuff him back on a truck, and they send him right back to the same house again. So he's done a very short visit to Christianstadt. Now he's back in Bogotá, up the road, in, in, in his house again. That's all verified. Awesome. Clues came together there very well. So at this point, I remember him 
in a session making a comment that he really thought he was headed to another camp, like not a nice camp, because when they got to Christianstadt, there were people there with weapons uh, in uniform and whatnot. And most certainly there still would have been German soldiers there guarding this camp, lots of police, whatever. So remember I asked to imagine what it was like to be on this trip add a huge pile of anxiety, uncertainty uh, to, to all of that mix if you hadn't already got that. Um, really, he has absolutely no idea what's going to happen 10 seconds down the road. Um, quite amazing that he actually carried, carried on forward rather than just say to hell with this and just sit inside a row, whatever happens, happens, right? Many would have done that. So, yeah, Christian stat. Very interesting place. But on another of many side notes, when we started talking about Christianstadt, Karen, and talking about the security of the camp, I think it was you that actually that described it because you were looking at this place. And you described it much like Area 51 that we have today. Now, mm. as, as soon as you said Area 51, an unknown fella appeared to you in the room that we were sitting and kind of give us the finger of don't go there right which was kind of humorous right <laughs> right we all know about area 51 and don't go there um but the question for me has always been you know we're not going to area 51 we're going to christianstadt what's the problem mm -hmm. is the don't go there got to do with christianstadt or mm -hmm. does it got to do with area 51 because they're both essentially treated the same for security purposes it's oh. kind of interesting and in fact when we did uh two three years ago we did the audio podcast and i was talking about some of this the same fella appeared again when we were doing the podcast so if he pops up again you know that would that'd be kind of cute but uh yeah so uh a lot of interest in this place a lot of freaking chaos i mean i can only picture it in my head it's just absolutely Absolutely loony, really, chaos, supreme. But anyway, that is all we've got on Christianstadt, because he's back in Bogotá, just down the road. Now, like I said, he stayed here after he came back there in the truck. He stayed there a couple more nights. And... He didn't want to be there, and we could tell he didn't want to be there just by some of the comments he was throwing out. So he, he, he was in a hurry to be on the road. Plus, okay, got to remember, Soviets are coming. What did I say we were there? 24, sorry, when I said 25th of February, the refugees were arriving there, I meant 25th of January, not February. Because on the 10th of February, 1945, the first... Uh, artillery rounds started coming in from the Soviets in that very area. They knew it was coming, so everybody there had got as many people as they could uh, onto vehicles and whatnot and moved them the hell out of the area. The order was given to evacuate completely. Everybody was moved out. Even the civilians that lived in the village were told they had to leave. Um, so they, they, they left. Everybody's gone. So he was gone before or by, at the very latest, the 10th of February. 
I don't think he would have stuck around that place very long whatsoever. Um, so yeah, he's on the road again. Now, where is he? Where is he headed now? I'm looking at my map. I didn't write a lot of notes after this because I'm winging it now. <laughs> he's on the road from Bogota. Again, he cannot cross to the west from Bogota. Uh, the Germans hold the border, and there's a river that runs along the border at this point from Bogota north, the border between what we know is now Poland and Germany now, because that border, remember, has changed. So over every river, there's bridges. But because the Soviets were so close, the Germans started blowing bridges. And that's a normal thing to do to stop the Soviet advance. It's very hard to cross a river if you don't have a bridge. You got to have bridging equipment and it's going to slow you down, right? So you got to look for an alternative. Now you can't blow all the bridges in case you still need to use them yourself. So there's a few of them open, but they weren't in this area. So everybody had to bug off. Now, a lot of them crossed before the evacuation at Christianstadt and headed directly west into Germany because they were German. They could easily do that. And the POWs from Christianstadt were certainly taken in that direction. They were taken it directly into Germany from there. So that wasn't an issue for them. The equipment from the camp, Christianstadt, was put on trains from that company and it was set in that direction as well. Grandfather told us he went east, east from Bogota. Now east, roughly east, I'm figuring. Uh, now there's not that many roads, okay? There's a few roads that generally run along the river and then eventually cross the river, but only a couple that head sort of east from there. What road he took, I do not know. Maybe we'll find that out later. So from Bogota, he's heading east. What clues did we get from here? This is where it's kind of cool again. Um, do you remember, Karen, uh, in your dream, driving a car and ending up at a river? Yes, I do. Right. Yeah. The, the road became a river yeah. and the river became a road. This was a clue that he had given us that he figured would be a really good clue. Uh, like many of his clues, might have been good, but it wasn't good for quite a while. Um, that one took me a long time to figure out. Um, going along with that came Golden Cross as a clue. Golden Cross. Now, rather than play with the river, uh, I keyed on the Golden Cross. And I looked everywhere for a Golden Cross. I took it figuratively first, right? Where's a golden cross? You know, lots of Google searches, right? Poland, golden cross. Da, da, da. Didn't find much. Until one day, I did find a golden cross. I found that the same day, I figured out how the road turned into a river. So I'm not going to give up the clue just yet. Turns out, he went to Posen. I remember Posen. Posen was where he went as a POW. Yeah. Now, I doubt he went to the very same place in Posen. Posen's a big city, okay? But 
Posen's a very interesting place. I, I'll be visiting that place one, one day. Uh, gorgeous place. Anyways, Posen has a golden cross. Turns out there was, for the longest time, a golden cross that sat on a bridge. Right now, the cross isn't golden. Jesus is golden, and he's on this cross. And it's a very famous cross, apparently. And when the Nazis got there, they didn't like it, so they blew it up. The cross, that is, not okay. the bridge. Right? The cross is gone. They just didn't like no. that? No, I don't want it. <laughs> we'll blow it up. So the cross is gone. Turns out they build another one, right? I don't know whether the second one is golden. They put it in place and it gets blown up again. So the idea was is we don't want your crosses on this bridge. So I actually don't know what the idea was, but that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So, okay, golden cross, and it's imposing. How interesting. But could I be wrong, right? I always look for more than one piece of verification here. So I'll go back to the road becomes a river, your lovely dream there. Mm -hmm. Well, when you research the history of Posen, Posen has a, a, a fairly significant river that runs through the middle of the city. And uh, the river does a very tight corner, doubles back on itself before heading north uh, to, to, the, to the sea. This river was prone to flooding because of its shape and it was also very difficult for for boats to navigate because it was such a sharp curve. So not during the war, this is well after the war, but it fits with a the clue. They decided that they'd reroute this river. So they took the curve out of it, filled in that part of the river with dirt, put buildings and roads over top of it. And rerouted the river to to meet further north that part was dug further open and the ground became a river what so you driving a car road became a river and river became a road and that is the only place that i can find did this um that combined with golden cross set me firmly on that he went to posen so, yay. So, <laughs> yay? Yeah. So, like, I'm blown away. Like, yeah, I, yeah. like I, I'm blown away by the, by the dream and how this works for us in, in these gifts. And I'm blown away by the amount of work you do. By oh. the amount of sheer, sheer will to love your grandfather and to know his story that you translate documents and read them and research like it just that's well, a it's a lot of work but it's amazing work and but jim most people don't want to look up from their phones to know their grandparent <laughs> yeah yeah well you know like <laughs> i i can't account for for everybody else, uh, you know, this this was a special story for me. And uh, when I started it, I never envisioned it would take mm -hmm. this kind of form. I would never envision it would take me this long. And, and it's it just turned into an amazing challenge. And, and, and the story just got better and better every day. And 
Yeah, just wonderful. Now think about what would have happened if Karen, you hadn't told me about your dream. Yeah, like, and you know what, Jim? Like you would just walk into the room and I just don't even know how to explain the verbal diarrhea that occurred. Where <laughs> you, literally, I sometimes you'd walk into the house or you'd walk into the treatment room. And like I said, I would just start showing you my fingernails or I would just start saying, oh, and by the way, last night I had this dream, Jim. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah, somebody why? Say, yeah, why? And somebody might say, mm, I wonder if Karen and Jim are friends. No, no, we're not. <laughs> somebody might say, oh, well, you know what I mean? Like they might look for another yeah. reason. Oh, like and how much like, you're sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like why would she just, but I do that for other clients. Other clients walk into the house and I start dancing in front of them like somebody who's crossed over and they look at me and go, do you intend to dance like my grandfather? <laughs> and I go, I don't want to because he doesn't dance well, but it just yeah, happens. And I yeah, think that's why I said I'm just blown away by all of it. Yeah, the way this has come together is, is quite remarkable, quite remarkable. Um, yeah. The dreams, we've got that a few times now. The dreams have mm -hmm. been quite significant. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of my dreams were significant. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, I uh, started back into a time when I wasn't, from a time when I wasn't having dreams and I started dreaming again. And uh, I remember one night I dreamt about two figures at, at night walking across a, a, an open field covered in snow. And in the same dream, uh, staggering down a roadway with other people. Mm. And, and at one point, actually, uh, it turned out to be my grandfather when we talked about it. Um, he, he was on this roadway and uh, he managed to bum a ride on the fender of a truck. So, uh, you know, you put all this together. Yeah. And, and, and uh, how the story comes out is extremely remarkable, but the story itself mm -hmm. is incredibly remarkable. Um, you know, and I sit here telling it as best I can from today's point of view, trying mm -hmm. to make it feel like it was in 1944-45. Very difficult thing to do because we're not there. And most of us have never experienced anything even remotely like this. And I'm not a war fan. I don't read war books and watch more movies. And I think, you know, some listeners might think, well, maybe Karen just watched a lot of shows. No, Karen doesn't even know geography. <laughs> no. You, you see the face? And yeah. Jim knows this. Jim knows yeah. I don't know geography because oh, yeah. I'd have to say, Jim, I haven't got a clue. I don't understand this part. I don't get this. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, yeah. none of this is my forte. No, none. we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of uh, moments of, of, of trying to uh, describe what exactly you were telling me. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> very, very, right. very interesting. The stuff that I did know at the time anyway. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, again, you know, uh, how my grandfather felt at the time when he was doing this is, is, is the biggest part of this story. Mm. You know, what was keeping him going? You know, like uh, you mentioned movies. Watch all the movies you want. Movie, movies are Hollywood. And, and some of them are really good. 
but some of them are dressed up to make the viewers uh, more palatable for the viewers, mm -hmm. like a better story. Yeah. You know, I mean, how much ugly can you actually show before it becomes too much? Mm -hmm. And how could you ever depict this kind of a scenario? You know, maybe if you want to go down the road of watching Schindler's List, I'm sure that that's probably pretty good at getting to you, getting you into that frame of mind in that location, that time, that horrible. The movie's great, but it's a horrible, horrible scenario. Not a nice movie to watch, really. Um, so, you know, he went through all of this. He witnessed a lot of it. And this is the kind of thing that was going on all around him this whole time. So while he was not there for very long, he was deeply embedded in all of this crap. So, and I think maybe that's one of the biggest points I want to get out in this podcast is not just the physical, he was here, then he went here, then he went here, but just what it may have been like to actually have done that. Because um, that, again, plays right in with his story. So I think about stepping foot on my front porch in the dead of winter, mm. dressed in appropriate garb. Yeah. And I turn around and walk back inside. And now I'm not doing this. Well, yeah. And, you know, go back to the camp yeah. he was in at the start of this podcast. The camp he was in, they mm -hmm. weren't in a building. There was a building there, but they never stayed in it. They weren't allowed to be in this building. They slept wherever they could find shelter in that, in that field, right? Mm -hmm. So if he lived or died was of no consequence to, to uh, yeah. the German guards, you know, ultimately... The idea was for you to die. Just maybe we can get some use out of you before that, right? So uh, not a pretty time, not a pretty scenario. So Jim, in the interest of time, um, what else are we covering today? I think we're going to clip it right there. Okay. Um, we're going to leave him in posing for the second time in a few years. And uh, we'll carry on from there uh, in, in the next podcast. Excellent. Mm, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I hope that you're really enjoying listening to the love story between Jim and Grandpa. Yes, we have one more show for you. You can binge that right away. Uh, we hope you enjoy the final series. <laughs>